My name is Steve Douglas. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Boy, you're easily pleased today. <laughs> um, yeah, we have a lot to celebrate right now in the life of our church. And we have been leaning into that celebration over the last uh, few weeks. And so, um, you know, as Paul mentioned, we were at uh, Hidden Greens last week. And if you haven't been with us over the last several weeks, um, we have laid out a vision for um, where we've been, what the Lord is doing in and among us now, and then what we're hopeful for, what we see the Lord leading us into, into the future. And so I just want to encourage you, if you aren't familiar with all of that uh, that's been laid out, please go to our website and take a look at those sermons from the last four weeks or so. And they're going to be really helpful in, in introducing you to us um, and where we're heading. Um, also, I just want to say thank you to so many people who've been involved in the process of both last week's event, but also in uh, the foundation phase with the, the parking lot and the chairs in here and painting and all the things that are going on. So thank you to staff and volunteers uh, for being a part of that. Um, we are returning back to our regularly scheduled programming in the Gospel of John. And so we're going to be digging into John 15, 1 through 17. This is on the vine and the branches. And so if you need a Bible, just go ahead and raise your hand. We've got them to hand out for use. All right, everybody's got one. That's awesome. Well, um, as you're paging or uh, using your electronic device to, device to get there, um, I'll give you a little bit of background on John 15. So uh, it is part of the upper room discourse where Jesus is meeting with his disciples and they are taking part in this ceremony called the Passover Seder meal. And uh, it, it's this traditional meal uh, in which they celebrate God's um, uh, preservation and deliverance from Egypt. And it's what draws Israel together as a people. It, it's what their, their law and their nation is based on. And so they're gathering together for this meal, and Jesus points to the elements in this meal, particularly the bread and wine, and they show, he shows how they point to him. That they were always meant to point to who he is. And he uses them to institute a new covenant with his people. And we're going to take that celebration this morning in the form of communion with the bread and the wine. And in the ceremonial meal, Jesus, as the leader, would have prayed a prayer over the cup of wine. And it goes this way. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam barei peri hagafen. And what that means is, praise the Lord our God, King over everything, who creates the fruit of the vine. Jesus then leads into how those things, how the fruit of the vine pointed to him. And he taught his disciples what was always really meant by that. And so let's read our first two verses together, John 15, 1 through 2. I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. 
So this is the last I am statement that Jesus gives to his disciples. And so he's given a number of these uh, throughout the Gospel of John. And uh, that I am statement is not meant to be something that we just pass over as if we were just talking with other people. Well, I'm this, I'm that. Instead, he is being very intentional with his use of a phrase. And in Hebrew, that phrase is Yahweh. I am, I exist. And so Jesus is claiming for himself the name of God, the, the name that God gave to his people in covenanting together. And so when people objected to that, Jesus always leaned into it and challenged them to see that rather than disassociating himself, saying, no, that's not what I meant by this. Instead, he leans in. So Jesus is claiming the divine name for himself. He is claiming to be God. And so in this I am statement, Jesus is now uh, taking that and he is recalling Israel's past in the midst of this ceremonial meal. And he's creating this image that he's inviting his disciples into to take a look at. What is this meant to look like? How is this relationship with I am supposed to work? So I've shared with you guys before that during college and seminary, I worked um, a lot of that time in, in landscaping. And in landscaping, you learn a lot about both cultivated plants, but also wild plants. And one plant that I had to work with a lot was grapevines, both wild grapevines and cultivated grapevines. And wild grapevines, when you find them, um, first of all, they're easy to propagate. They, the birds come and grab those little things, and they're full of seeds, and then they, they go and drop them everywhere. And so these just kind of spring up willy-nilly. But grapes are not able to support themselves. They have to grow on something to support themselves and to get to the light that they need. And so they tend to trail and go all over everything, and they'll climb up trees, and they'll get so prolific that they'll actually choke out the their host tree and kill it. And so oftentimes I'd have to go and rip these vines out of people's properties and cut them down and kill off the root and all of that. And I, I know we've got some, some people who work on farms here who can go like, uh-huh, we know exactly what that's like. And we've even got it out here on the back 40. So if you uh, have a chance, uh, all the leaves went away or I would have grabbed some and brought them in to show you. But uh, uh, in the springtime when you go out there, you'll see we've got plenty of grapevine. And uh, anyway, so I also had to deal with cultivated grapes. And um, with those, I would come and bring these cultivated grapes and train them up on arbors or on trellises or on fence rows in order for people to get fruit out of them. And the interesting thing is the, the common grapes that we see are pretty much exactly the same thing as cultivated grapes. Just over time, people have cultivated um, to get larger and larger grapes that they then graft into other rootstocks. And so there's a huge difference, though, in the quality of the grape and the size of the grape because of that. And so uh, Jesus is using this image of this viticulture, this um, vine dressing, to convey some important points to his disciples. Here he says that he is the true vine. Well, already that sets up a contrast. 
that there must be a false vine or false vines. And in the Old Testament, God likens his people Israel to a grapevine in a number of places. But in each case, it's negative. With God doing the work of cultivation and vine dressing among his people, but the product that is produced is bitter or poisonous fruit because of the hardness of their hearts. In Moses' prophetic song over the nation before they entered into Canaan in Deuteronomy 32, he tells them that they're not going to be able to stay true to the covenant. And he's saying these words, Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison and their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. He's saying that about his own people. So Jesus is creating this difference between him and the nation. And he's taking on this identity of an obedient Israel. He is going to be a vine that produces good fruit. And so Jesus takes this theme from the Old Testament and he reiterates it's the father who's the one who's cultivating his people. But his people are those who are coming to faith in Christ Jesus. Christ is the true vine who grows and produces fruit, fruit that will last, his disciples. And the Father is the one who is going to come along and he's going to examine every branch and he's going to prune or he's going to lop accordingly. So when you're cultivating these grapevines, their natural, um, in a sense, desire, their natural uh, way of doing things is to trail all over everything and get as much light as possible and then produce this really anemic fruit like we see the, with the wild vines. And, and cultivated grapes will do the exact same thing unless somebody comes along and intentionally prunes it back to make sure that the energy is put into fruit production. And another reason why you need to do this pruning is sometimes branches might get diseased or um, they might get insects or, or something else uh, going on on them and you'll have to prune back. Or um, sometimes something has gone pretty wrong with a branch and you have to lop it off, it, uh, otherwise it'll infect or, or destroy the rest of the plant. And so this, in both cases, whether it's pruning or it's lopping, it's painful to the plant. The plant doesn't want that. The plant wants to just go wherever it wants. But it takes a, a good and experienced vine dresser to make sure that things are pruned the right way to make sure good fruit is produced. And it's the Father that's doing this work through the Son and through the Holy Spirit to train Christ's people to produce good fruit. And that process can sometimes hurt. It can feel painful. And the Lord is faithful to bring things into our lives that don't always feel good. So I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where I go like, this doesn't feel right, Lord. Why am I going through this? Why do I have to deal with, with this thing or with this person or with this painful circumstance? And yet, God uses these things to develop us and to change our perspectives and really not to push us away, but to draw us to himself. 
The apostle, we call this sanctification, by the way. Anybody ever have a sanctifying experience? Well, this is what we're talking about. Paul talks about it this way in Romans 5. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings. Okay, wait, what? <laughs> glory in our sufferings. When was the last time you gloried in your suffering? Anytime you call up a friend and go, Wow, I am suffering! <laughs> this is great! Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's this Lego movie, and it's, uh, there's this character that says, let me tell you me tale of woe. You know, I think that's normally how we approach this, not, uh, not so much glorying in our sufferings. But he says we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We can glory in the sufferings because we know God is faithful in providing them for our good. Even when we're hurting or we're frustrating, frustrated or frustrating, God is working to turn those things into good and holy fruit. I was talking to somebody just the other day who's, um, they lost their mother to cancer and they recounted to me that in the last months of their mother's life, their mother was thankful for the cancer. And that really struck me. I was wondering, well, why, why would you say it that way? But they were saying that their mother expressed that because of the cancer, because of this terminal diagnosis, she counted every day as a blessing. She was able to see God at work in every single day intentionally. And it gave her opportunities to be really intentional about blessing her family and other people around her. Cancer was a blessing. I think we need to learn to embrace the pruning that God does in our lives because he's using that to train us to look more like Jesus and produce fruit that looks like Jesus. That's one side of our discipleship is the godliness that Jesus is producing within us personally, our personal growth in holiness. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, We don't lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We fix our eyes on Christ because that relationship is eternal. 
Someday our faith will be made sight. As we go on in our text, we see the importance of our ongoing relationship with Jesus. So let's read 3 through 8. You are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So the word that we see here, that, that we translate as clean, can also be translated as pure or guiltless or ritually acceptable. And so just remember our context of, of Jesus in this ceremonial meal with his disciples. And he's talking about what is being produced in them. And that prayer that's prayed over the cup and it's prayed over the people that as they take the cup together, they're made ceremonially clean before God. And he's saying, it's not the cup. It's not even the prayer. It's what I'm doing in you. It's me being in you and you being in me that makes you clean before God the Father. It's our connection to Jesus by faith that makes us acceptable to God. And that is work that we cannot accomplish on our own. On our own, we can do nothing. Nothing good at any rate. It's what Jesus is doing in us, what he's producing within us that is acceptable to God. And so we need to remain or abide in him and ask him to accomplish godliness in us. So even when we take communion today, as, as we prepare to take this, this is a, we're told to take this in remembrance of Christ Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. It's what he's done. It serves as a reminder that he makes us acceptable to God. And then in verse 7, Jesus makes this extraordinary promise that uh, we need to kind of wrap our heads around. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Lord, I would like a million dollars. Lord, I would like a Corvette. But I'll take a million dollars so I can buy the Corvette. You might see where my idol is. <laughs> it isn't that we should be expecting that we will get whatever we want in our flesh because we have relationship with Christ. In fact, if we approach it that way, what we're really doing is we're saying that the only reason we have relationship with God is to get stuff. And that's not what he's talking about. Instead, uh, you know, it would be a misunderstanding to make it about us. Instead, it's about this relationship we have with, with God. 
There's a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga, and he wrote this book on how sin works called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And he relates how our desires can be twisted, or as he calls it, perverted. And so here's what he says. Perversion is an ends and purpose disease. It's the diversion of loyalty and energy and desire away from God and God's project in the world to these side projects of our own, often accompanied by jerry-built ideologies that seek to justify the diversion. Sometimes we pervert our own longings, aiming them at the wrong objects or indulging in them disproportionately so that they become dull where God and the things of faith are concerned, but acute where only proximate goods such as money and knowledge and power are concerned. Good spiritual hygiene includes a practiced ability to assess different goods plus the power of will to pursue them with appropriate degrees of interest. Unhappily, though, involuntary longings lead us around a good deal, and ignorance and self-deception often skew our judgments about what is worth longing for in the first place. All that to say is, our passions, our desires, lead us down the wrong roads after the wrong things. And that should remind us of the warning that James gives us in chapter 4 of his letter. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures." What am I really going to do with a million dollars? What would I do with that Corvette? I'd probably lose my license in the first day. <laughs> Ask whatever you wish. Here in John 15, that is modified by, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. So. Our wish here is conditioned by our discipleship of Jesus. As we spend time with him, as we grow in knowing God better through our time with Christ Jesus in the word, meditating on that, um, seeking the Holy Spirit, praying um, for, for direction, it starts to shift how we approach life. It shifts our perspective. It draws us to look more and more like Christ Jesus himself. And our prayers begin to look more like his prayers. Later that same night, Jesus is going to pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Our discipleship leads us into alignment with the Father's will. And as disciples, we want to spend time with our king, not so that we can get stuff, but so that we can get him. And in the process of obtaining him, we will also gain confidence that we're praying according to God's will and assurance that our branch is not going to be lopped off and that the pruning that we're experiencing, as uncomfortable as it may be, is for our good. It's done with love. 
This is a spiritual cultivation. So sometimes it might be hard to see with our human eyes what's being accomplished. How do I know that I'm being pruned here for good godly purposes rather than being lopped off? Anybody ever struggle with that? One, I think understanding God's love for us is huge in that process. And Jesus tells us that the evidence of remaining in him and producing good, God-glorifying fruit is love. So let's keep reading. 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command, that you love each other. God the Father loves the Son, and God the Son loves his disciples. The love that Jesus has for us is the very love of the Father. I am. And the result of them cultivating love within us is the ability to keep his commands. And this work of keeping Christ's commands is not a work that we can muster up on our own. We cannot accomplish it. On our own, we can do nothing. In fact, the condemnation of the false vine of Israel, and what we see throughout that Old Testament uh, about Israel, is, is illustrating that for us. That we cannot accomplish it through our own flesh. Instead, we are so reliant on God developing this love within us. And he is going to do it. Paul says in Philippians 2, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good purpose. Not work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You better get it right. Why fear and trembling? Because of the awe that God would work in us both to will and to do according to his good purpose. That he would want to do that. That he loves us that much. That he would draw us to himself. If you're struggling with knowing if Jesus is developing this love within you, pray about it. 
Ask the Lord to reveal that to you. Ask him to do that work in you. Ask him to give you the eyes. We prayed earlier, uh, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Ask him to open your eyes to see his love being poured out in you and through you. Because we're loved by Jesus, we are able to love one another. And that's Jesus' command. Love one another. That might sound like an easy thing to do, but anybody ever try it? Ever experience any troubles? I sure have. I was telling my wife the other day, I was saying, you know, when I was younger, I thought I could get along with anybody. Didn't matter. Just you can be kind of that outgoing person, and I'm sure we can find something to agree on. And then as I've gone along, boy, that person really doesn't like me. Huh. Or I don't like them. I don't know. Just saying. It's not easy. There are so many challenges, and it's not in our flesh to do that. Our flesh is to worship ourselves. And if everybody else doesn't worship us the same way, there's something wrong with them, right? And that creates conflict. We need to remember, though, that Jesus' command to love is not a love that is dependent on feelings. This isn't an emotion-based love. This is a different kind of love. And so you've probably heard that in the Greek language there are a batch of different words that we translate into a very blunt English as love. In this case, this word is agape, and it is this word that means a love of devotion and commitment. Covenantal love. We're being for one another, and that's being repeated over and over again in this passage. And what it's really saying to us is it's God being for us, for, for the Son, the Son being for us, that allows us to be for one another. The intentionality is I'm going to be for you. Doesn't matter if I like you, though I like you guys. I like all of you. But if I didn't, that's not the issue. That's not going to stop my being for you. I want to be for you. Why? Because Jesus has been for me. How do we see the love of God? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. This being for one another, again, isn't something that we can just muster up on our own. It has to come from our relationship with Jesus Christ. It has to be nourished through the vine and out into us as the branches to produce the fruit of loving one another. But this is a love that lifts one another up. And cares for one another. And that's why Jesus says to his disciples, he no longer calls them servants, but friends. That is an amazing thing. Because we're his disciples too. That means that Jesus has loved us. Okay, stop for a moment and be in awe of that. We need to be in awe of that. That Jesus loves me? Jesus loves me. He's for me. 
Because the Father and the Son are cultivating us through the Spirit, and because they have initiated this covenantal love toward us, we're being enabled to turn around and love each other the same way. We're being called to care for one another in the body, and also to turn that love outward into the world. And we're able to do that even with people who we don't agree with, we don't think like, we don't look like, we, don't, uh, we wouldn't want to politically associate with, whatever it might be. We can still be for them and desire to bless them because of what Christ did for us. And that's an amazing thing too. And that's the other side of this fruit of discipleship. The one side being that personal holiness that the Lord is developing within us. But the other part is because of the way he's loved us, the fruit bearing is that we're going out and we're sharing the gospel of our hope in Christ Jesus with the broken world around us. We're loving them and we're blessing them in his name. We're pointing them back to him. And it's amazing that he says that we are chosen both to be loved and to love. You've been chosen. You've been chosen. And he's appointed us to bear this kind of fruit. John says in 1 John 4, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. There's that idea of that completeness of love, of joy. I truly believe, brothers and sisters, that God doesn't make mistakes in this. As much as sometimes we might wonder if he has with us, or with somebody else, or in where we find ourselves, or in the situations that frustrate us, God, did you make a mistake on this one? I don't think he has. Instead, we have the opportunity to have our perspective changed and see how he is pruning us in the situation and using it to bear fruit, even in a place where maybe we don't want to be. All of this is being done to bear this fruit of intentional love to the people around us, to our families, to our neighbors, to our workmates, to our friends. So I would just want to encourage you today, challenge you maybe as we take communion. We're going to transition to the communion in just a moment, but I would just want to challenge you to keep this image of the vine and the branches in mind and look for the fruit that God is producing in and through you. Look for the ways that the vine dresser is faithfully loving you, even as you're being pruned. Trust that he's not lopping you off. Lean in. Don't run away. Lord God, uh, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this reminder that we cannot accomplish holiness on our own that we cannot please you and be acceptable in your sight through our own flesh 
And where we try to do that as human beings, we actually produce bad, poisonous fruit because we're self-worshippers by nature. And so, Lord, we long for you to do work on our hearts and we long for you to draw us to yourself and to make sure that we are solidly grafted into the vine of Jesus, that he nourishes us and he draws us to you to produce good fruit. Lord, we want to please you. We want to worship you. And you're worthy of good fruit. So build your kingdom and build your vine in this world by using us so that we can glorify you and that we can be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.